My name is Dick. I am alcoholic. And I'm extremely grateful to be here. Uh, as I mentioned, my sobriety date is June the 8th, 1977. My home group is the Northwest Group in Atlanta, Georgia. My sponsor is John H. And I mention those things, especially if you're new, because if I was told if you don't have a, uh, a home group and a sponsor, uh, you probably wouldn't keep that sobriety date, and I keep all three of them in order. Um, I have not had a desire for a drink since I got here on June the 8th. Not one day, not ever. Um, that has very little to do with me. It has all to do with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I say it because I went back uh, Christmas to uh, a meeting of my original home group, and there were 16 people in that meeting who had 28 years or more of sobriety, and they were there when I came in or came in with me. And not one of the men that I ran with who was serious about this program ever had to take another drink. Relapse doesn't have to be part of sobriety. The big book tells us that the, 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 the... But what we're doing here this weekend may make the difference in whether you're here next year or the year after. So uh, I feel blessed to be here, and I'm especially appreciative. Uh, one of the things I got a call from my wife, uh, and she was thanking me for flowers that were sent by the committee here to her, thanking her for letting me be here for this weekend. That's a class act, and that's the kind of stuff that we learn how to do when we're thoughtful, and I would just like to thank everybody here for that. You don't know what that means. Um, I believe that we are children of God and that these women that we date and can marry are are our daughters of God and they treat with respect and the fact that you sent her flowers means more to me than anything you could ever do for me. It really does and I appreciate it a great deal. I come from a uh, family of honor, not a family of wealth, but um, uh, my uh, father uh, came out of Hopkinsville, Kentucky uh, and uh, a military family. Uh, My mother, uh, her father was a uh, coal miner in Harlan County, Kentucky. Uh, They're good people. Um, And uh, they met at a, uh, my dad was a a B-25 pilot during uh, uh, World War II, shot down behind Nazi lines, came out, saved his crew, got the Army Cross. The the kind of family I come from is is a family that has for generations and generations and generations served their country uh, with no bragging about it, uh, quietly, um, and believes that's part of our duty. And my dad, as I said, is a retired bird colonel. My little sister is a retired bird colonel. She was the, uh, a bird colonel here at uh, Fort Campbell, not too far from here. She went through the ranger school. She went through jump school. I got a brother, bird colonel. I've got a nephew that was uh, a West Point grad who was driving uh, tanks in Iraq. I've got a, a grandnephews that were special ops running around Baghdad. That's the kind of family I come from. And it, the standard was not high in terms of money or in high academic, although there were some smart people in that family, but that's the kind of family I come from. My mom and dad are happily married. They live in uh, uh, Prospect Little East of Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, they are the kind of people my dad or mom would no more think of walking away with an extra nickel of change and not taking it back to the cashier. They wouldn't cheat on their income tax. They're just straightforward, honest people who believe in doing their duty uh, they spent all their time and energy trying to raise me up. I was the first born. I was the son that they were so proud of. I cannot tell you why, but from the very beginning, I didn't fit into that crowd. 
In the 60s, there was a debate about what caused our problems. And it um, would uh, be a great topic for some of the new open discussion meetings we have. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the debate was, am I that way because of genetics or am I that way because of my environment? Under no circumstance should I be here at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting because genetically there's not... My dad can have a cigar and get drunk on New Year's Eve and go back and do the same thing the next New Year's. When we had family reunions, we had iced tea, we had lemonade. It just wasn't a big part of our, of our culture and my family. Um, and, so, uh, and the environment that I grew up in. Here I have an honorable father. He's, he's, uh, to me, he was my hero. He was in this suit, and he would fly off. Um, my mom and dad met when he was a P-51 pilot after the war, got married. She was a uh, stewardess for American Airlines. Uh, they went off to Acapulco for a honeymoon, and nine months later they came, they came, they came back. Nine months later I was the gift that arrived. And, uh, and, and I'm convinced that they wanted the very best for me, and have always wanted the very best for me. They're still, both still uh, uh, living uh, happily married uh, in their mid-'80s in, uh, in the Louisville area. My little sister and her husband are both retired bird colonels uh, who are who working at loca- locally at a medical, uh, one of the universities there. And they live right across the street. And so genetically, there was nothing going on. As far as the environment, I was brought up. Uh, even the things that were outside of my family that they had no control over. Uh, I was a member of Little League. I was a member of Boy Scouts. I was a member of the YMCA. I was a member of 4-H. Um, I was, went to, to vacation Bible school and to Sunday school and all of these things. Everywhere I turned, I was being given a message that God loves you. You're worth something. But I couldn't accept that. I believe, as different as we are, that we are brought together because we're people who cannot accept or even identify the gifts that God has for us. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me has allowed me to, one, identify the gifts, and secondly, start using them. And that's what we were talking about in terms of purpose when we were talking earlier and what we'll talk about through the weekend. But I couldn't identify. If you remember in Boy Scouts, and I, and I used to have a good memory, but I had three strokes three years ago, so I have... This one I have to write down. We were supposed to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. What an order. (laughs) I couldn't go through with it. From the very beginning, even though I got all of this through all of the places where I went, you couldn't have had a better environment for teaching somebody how to be well-adjusted and to deal with life successfully than what I had. The only thing I've had to overcome is opportunity. And so I, here I am, here I am, but I couldn't relate. And the one thing I absolutely could not do that I have found in Alcoholics Anonymous is tell another person honestly what was going on inside of me. I, I had no one as a sponsor. I couldn't talk to my dad. I was in awe of him, and and, and I respected him. I just couldn't talk to him. I couldn't talk to my little league coach. I couldn't talk to the Boy Scout leaders. I couldn't talk to anybody. For some reason, from the very beginning, I related to... I was born in 1950. I'm I'm 55. Got sober when I was 27 years old, so I've been sober almost 28 years. More more than half of my life spent in Alcoholics Anonymous. So in the 50s, we had this thing called a television, and it came out, and it was black and white. There was no color television back then. And uh, the television shows that I watched, again, had great moral lessons. Uh, Andy Griffith Show, Leave it to Beaver, uh, Father Knows Best, Ozzie and Harriet. And in all these shows, somehow I could relate to them where I couldn't relate to real life. 
But in that show, if Wally or Opie got off the beam someplace, by the end of the show, their dad had gently said something non-judgmental, not like the colonel. And, 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 they were, and they were able to get back on the beam, and everything was okay. And so they became my moral compass. They became the place where I felt like I fit in more than anything else. Then I had my first spiritual experience in 1956. I went to the drive-in with my parents, and for the first time I saw on a big screen, 120-foot wide, this color uh, film, and it was in technicolor. And it was, uh, it was the Ten Commandments. Uh, with Cecil B. DeMille, and, and, uh, uh, and my life changed right then. The big book says lack of power is our dilemma, and so that's what I felt like. I felt like my dad and all these people, they were heroes, and they were these men, and, 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 and for whatever reason, I, I could not, I didn't have what they had. I didn't have that kind of power inside of me. And here was this film, and it was huge, and it was bigger than life, and, and the wind was blowing, and, and Moses' hair was blowing, and he had the staff, and all he had to do was go like this, and the Red Sea parted. And I said, that's what I want. I want that kind of power. <laughs> so I made two decisions that night. One, that I wanted to be on God's side, because I had seen what Charlton Heston had done to Yul Brenner. <laughs> and that I wanted to be in that business. And this is how straight As messed up as you are, no matter what condition you're in, God knows exactly where you are and is listening right now. And he heard me, and that's what I've done with my life. That's how I make my living. And, uh, uh, and he answered my prayers, even though I didn't think he was. I didn't recognize it at all. Didn't even recognize the voice. The next day I went down and got dipped and dunked and lifted Linden Baptist Church, uh, and I believe that I honestly took a third step. I really believe that I honestly said, God, take my life. But it doesn't help to take a third step if you don't tar- have a sponsor and take four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And I had nobody to tell me that. So I knew there was a God now. Now I felt guilty for anything that I did. But I had no control over what I was doing, and I got worse and worse. My next spiritual experience, I was 14 years old. Uh, my buddy Dave's older brother got us a six-pack of beer, Ertl's 92, beer they don't make anymore, and a uh, half pint of gin. I drank the beer, he drank the gym. And suddenly, that scared little Baptist Boy Scout felt like I was rising up and I was tall and I was just like Moses. I didn't have a staff, but I had a thumb. And so from the very beginning, I was not a stay-at-home drunk. I was a go-to-town drunk. And when you're 14, that means hitchhiking. And we hitchhiked up to a place called the White Castle. And uh, the White Castle, for those who... Do they have White Castles around here? Yeah, okay. All right. And so... um, uh, so we go up to the White Castle, and we got up there, and I'm having this spiritual experience, and all the fear is gone, and I'm feeling big and good, and uh, my buddy Dave is not having the same spiritual experience, and, and he's getting a little woozy, and, and I, had, I had seen in Perry Mason where if you have too much to drink, if you have, I hadn't had a cup of coffee, but if you have too much to drink, if you have a cup of coffee, it sobers you up so you can talk to the police. And so um, I ordered a cup of coffee for my buddy Dave. And it didn't have the desired effect, and Dave threw up down the counter. And if you're, as it turns out, if you're looking for Louisville City policemen at midnight, uh, the best place to find them is actually at the White Castle. And so, so two of them came down and said, uh, what's wrong with your friend? Now, I would have been scared to death of this guy. I would have been scared he would have told my dad. 
but I had had some alcohol, and so I just stood up like this, and I said, well, he's just had a little bit too much to drink. Well, how old's he? 14. How old's you? 14. So I was in Louisville City Jail four hours after I took my first drink. <laughs> and that was pretty much the end of my social drinking. <laughs> I drank as much as I could, whenever I could, wherever, whatever I could. From that point forward, the embarrassment of having my dad come down to pick me up, this father that I honored so much, was outweighed by the feeling I had of no fear that night, of being free and being big, and it just filled me up. It was what I was looking for. And I drank as much as I could whenever I could from that point forward. I would have told you when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous that my problems with drinking started two years before I got here. That's when I started sleeping on the bathroom floor and bleeding from the stomach and hallucinating and hearing voices that were coming out of uh, the heater and couldn't hold a job and had trouble getting up to the liquor store and walking back. I knew I had a problem then, and I had lost the control of my kidneys and bowels. But look what I did the first three times I took a drink. The first time, I drank beer. The second time, I drank something that uh, I would not advise for anybody. Uh, It was something an older guy got for me. Uh, It was actually... For those who remember, it was the date rape drug of the 60s, cherry vodka. (laughs) The third time I took a drink, I drank what I drank until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, which was Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. That was our drink. That's what I drank. I drank it with a little bit of water at first, and then I drank it with nothing for years. And and during that same two-month period of drinking, I was the quarterback on our JV football team. And I was dating this beautiful young girl. And by dating, I mean we were holding hands and talking on the phone and in love. And we went to hay rides. And, and, uh, uh, and it really was a wonderful relationship. And she's a fine person. And, 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 I had, and, and, and I was dating her. She was the captain of the JV cheerleaders. And she found out about my drinking episode. And she said, I understand that you got in trouble for this. My dad has a drinking problem. And I would prefer that you don't uh, drink when we go out. So I broke up with her. Within the first couple of months, I wasn't drinking for the taste of it. I was drinking for the proof of it. And I was giving up anybody and everybody, no matter how valuable they were to me, that got in the way of my drinking. And I didn't see that I had a drinking problem. Like I said, here's a kid who was in the advanced program. I had 1480s on the SATs. I could have gotten into Brown or Harvard or anyplace else. Uh, By the time I was a senior, um, my senior year, I got locked up six times. I got locked up at my senior prom, Uh, and by this time I'm 18, and uh, the charge was two counts of assault and battery on a police officer, so they're felony charges for for an adult, and this is the kid that uh, uh, his mom and dad wanted so much for him. And from day one, I can tell you that I rationalized that kind of drinking, and I had fun with it, and it didn't matter that I was losing every important person in my life. I I could justify it. I looked at all the great writers, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all these people, and and they all drank that way. I wasn't reading that Hemingway shot himself in the mouth with a shotgun and ended it that way, and Fitzgerald and Tennessee Williams later choked on a medicine bottle. I wasn't paying attention to that, but I I, I justified what I was doing. So I get locked up, and at prom time in Louisville is the same as Kentucky Derby time, and it's the same weekend in many cases, and... uh, uh, this time they didn't throw me in the drunk tank. They threw me in with seven felons. Now, I had gone to a lily-white high school who had 
two black people there, Charlie and Sharon. I knew both of them. They were brother and sister, so I thought I was straight on race relations. And so... <laughs> it's the 60s, and I, I get thrown into uh, uh, a eight-person uh, felony tank with seven Black Panthers who were in town to disrupt the Kentucky Derby and had been caught with a cache of explosives in the West End of Louisville. The adventure and the excitement start to get better. <laughs> this made national news. There's seven Black Panthers, me and my little powder blue tuxedo jacket. <laughs> my life was like being Forrest Gump, except drunk. I was always in these things. I wasn't really part of them. I wasn't part of any movement. I didn't know what was going on. But I always liked being in the middle of them, and that's just the way I lived. I go to this, I, I'm part of this family where, you know, I was in ROTC. I was going to be an officer. Everybody's an officer. They're all with honor. I got drunk one night, and somehow several of us got drunk, and we didn't want to miss out on Vietnam. That's how drunk we were. And so I go and enlist. And if you get the choice between being an officer and an enlisted man, they're much ruder if you're an enlisted man. So I join, I go, I had two tours. I did okay in the military, came from a military family. Uh, but I realized by this time that I got a problem. The second thing, though, was I, I, I justified this, too. I found some people that were a lot worse than me. In Kentucky in the 60s, we drank, but I never saw any dope or any kind of drugs or anything. We were a little bit behind California in that area. And so... I go to Vietnam, and a lot of people are smoking dope and doing drugs. Now I had somebody to look down on because I thought if you did drugs, you lacked self-discipline. The fact that I was carrying a camera bag so I could take pictures and I couldn't get all my lenses in there because I always had a fifth at any given time on a helicopter didn't occur to me that I had any problem at all. So, so I, I, I got through the military. I get out. I decide I'm going to move back to my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Now I'm going to settle down. And I found this woman, and she's absolutely spectacular, and we're in love, and we're talking about getting married, just trying to figure out what to do with her husband. And, and he, he, was, he, he, was, he had some problems of his own. He was, he, was, he was Lebanese. He was an advanced man for the Nixon administration. He was an attorney. And so we had a few run-ins here and there, and... Um, uh, I went after him a couple times with a shotgun. By now, I'm trained both in bourbon and firearms. And so uh, I go after him a couple times with a shotgun. He comes after me with a subpoena. <laughs> Different weapons. And so, uh, but I did, you know how we are. We alcoholics are absolutely persevering. If nothing else, the, the idea that we don't have willpower is ridiculous because I had tremendous willpower. I stuck in there until I got them divorced. And then, and then we were going to get married, and we set the date. It was supposed to be May the 20th. Uh, by this time, I'm working at an ad agency there. I'm writing and producing commercials, basically headed in the direction I wanted to go. And, uh, uh, and, and we've got the wedding date set. It was two weeks from the wedding. And I didn't come home for a couple of nights in a row. And I, I don't think I was actually messing around. I just think I couldn't get up. And, and so, so uh, um, but it created some doubt in her. So we uh, postponed. We didn't postpone. She postponed the wedding. And um, so now... I always knew when I was drinking that I couldn't last anything. I always knew that I would fail. Uh, 
There was something about it. I just always waited for the other foot to drop, so I knew I wasn't going to make it. And so I always had something else lined up. But in this particular case, I really loved this woman, and so I didn't have anything else lined up. So when she, two weeks before the wedding, decides we're not going to have the wedding, I'm not sure quite, quite sure what to do. But I had to regroup, and so I did. And, and you know how we pull from our past. And when I was in Vietnam, they would give us certain beers like hams and coors, which we didn't have down here in the south, and, and they could buy it for a nickel, and it was great. Well, they also had a magazine. I'd seen Playboy, but I'd never seen Penthouse. And Penthouse had this section called The Forum, or Letters, which was something I'd never seen before, but it just really seemed great to me. And we were sitting around, and there was this concept we would read over there, uh, you know, sitting over there and discuss, called the Menage à Troyes. And, um, <laughs> which... I, I didn't speak French at the time, but the idea was, which is strange because we were also in French Indochina, but we didn't know that either. And so uh, there was very little that we did know, but, uh, but we were all right, man. And so, uh, uh, so, so I had tucked this away, I thought, because to me, anyway, the concept of two women and me seemed like a good concept. And so uh, I had tucked this away. In fact, I'd even brought it out at intimate moments with my fiancé, but uh, having, having formerly been married to a Nixon aide, she was a little conservative and wasn't going for it. So, um, so I decide, I decide, we break up, and so, I, you know, it's like I always told people that I always had a positive attitude because I would make something out of it. So this is, this is my idea of like a perverse positive attitude. She throws me out. Now I'm going to see if I can find this menage. And where are you going to find a menage in the 60s? It's difficult enough. And so I had read this other... And if I had these two women, I wanted to, them to like each other. You know what I mean? So, so, I, I, so, I, so I had... So, so I had... So, and I bring this up because this is the kind of trouble you can get into without a sponsor. <laughs> There's another concept that was in these magazines that, I, that, that where the girls like each other called being a lesbian. So I think, well, I'll go to a lesbian bar. Then I have to find... Then finding a lesbian bar in Louisville in the 60s was not that easy anyway. But I managed to find one. I go down there, and I'm hitting it off really good with this woman. She was a big woman, and she was a, she was a vet. So we had something to talk about. I knew there was no menage, and she wasn't interested in menage. But, uh, but, but we were singing at the piano bar and having a good time. And, and I was just at that point, you know, I, was, uh, I, had, I had seen, I told you film affected me, and I had seen The Graduate ten times when it came out. Even though I'd made it through school without smoking, after I saw The Graduate, I started smoking cigarettes, and, and I had an affair with an older woman. And um, she'd be about 86 now. And so... Uh, so I'm sitting there with my new, my new buddy, and, uh, and, and, and I'm just, it's the shank of the evening, and you know how you, you, you get the whiskey down, and a few cigarettes, and that voice gets just right, and, and, and I'm sexy as hell, and I decide, <laughs> if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now, but there's nobody there except us, and then all of a sudden this door opens, and there was something going on upstairs, and there was this staircase that came down, and the most beautiful woman I have ever seen comes down. There used to be a TV show called The Loretta Young Show, and Loretta Young was, I don't know what color her hair was because it was in black and white, but she was beautiful, flowing gown, and all of a sudden, our eyes met, and we're going towards the middle of the room, and I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, spectacular green eyes and red hair, and, and we're just moving, and and I get to her, and we start kissing. And you know, when you're in love, you know, you take two steps, you kiss some more, you can't get enough of each other, and, and then I 
I'd almost forgotten what I was there for. I said, by the way, do you have a girlfriend that we can invite over? And she said, well, why don't you wait until tomorrow night and let us get to know each other tonight? And I said, my God. I am so glad I did not marry that woman. And so, uh, so, so, so here I am, and we're going back to my house, and we're holding hands, and we get back to my place. And I lived in a place where we all knew each other. It was pretty conservative. There were 13 apartments. I lived in one of most of the guys I went to school with. And every Sunday morning, this was Saturday night, every Sunday morning, we would all play volleyball out there. And the first one out there would pop the keg, and then, and then you'd go out, and you'd, you know, if you were married, you had the same one. But if you had a stayover, you'd introduce her to all your alcoholic friends to see if she fit in. It was a wonderful life. And so, 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 so there I am. So, once again, drugs rears its ugly head. Erica brought out this pill, and it was a big, huge pill, big enough to choke a horse. And it turns out it was a horse tranquilizer called a Quaalude. <laughs> and she said, "Would you like? Would you like a, a, one of these?" And I said, "Oh, no, thanks. I don't do drugs." And I took a few more shots on my wild turkey. And uh, shortly, two things happened. Uh, Erica passed out, and I found some equipment I definitely wasn't looking for. <laughs> and after <laughs> after three or four days, I said, "This is not right." This is where my moral compass stopped working. I had never seen this dealt with in any Opie or Wally episode. <laughs> it was about this time that my drinking took a turn for the worse. <laughs> I left that town. The relationship didn't work out. With, with, my, with Kathy, not Erica. And... Um, and, I, and you know how we are. I got fired from that job, but I got hired by the biggest agency in the world. Now I'm in New York. Now I'm flying on a Learjet. Now I'm doing Coca-Cola commercials. I have a production assistant whose job is supposed to be to help me, but whose primary job is to make sure I got Wild Turkey 101 at any given time, even if we're in a dry area of the country. We're flying around on Learjets. We're staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. All I have to do is do like a commercial or two each month. I want a Clio. On that part, I thought that they thought I was doing okay. Until one day I was in New York and I was recording some music for Coca-Cola and I go in there and this is a big responsibility. And, I, and, and I'm in there at 10 o'clock in the morning and I had gotten to the point where I could not control when I was going to be able to talk and when I wasn't. <laughs> and it was 10 o'clock and I couldn't talk. And I had to walk around the corner. I just walked out and I didn't explain myself. I walked out and went to a bar. And the guy saw me come in, and I didn't say a thing. He just poured a triple of whiskey. And I just, how does he know that I need that? And I walked in, and I started to get it up my mouth, and I couldn't. And I'd seen another movie, Lost Weekend with Ray Milan, where he takes a towel and puts it around his head, and the other part around the glass and pulls it up so he can get it down. And that's what I did. And I was shaking so hard that almost didn't work. And I thought, how did I get here? And I was 25 years old. And within... Not very long, I'd been fired from that job. They had moved me and demoted me and moved me down to Atlanta. And I was living in a basement apartment. Not that I wasn't paid well, but I just never could seem to pay my bills. And I was living in this basement apartment, and I got fired from that job. And I started that cycle 
And I had been estranged from my family for a long time. I had been at home when I came back from Vietnam, and my dad tried to stop me from going out, and I knocked him down in front of my family as they cried. This is a father who's... I would say, if I was honest about my life, the thing that I would like most in life is for my dad to be proud of me. And this is how I behaved, and this is what I did with him. Because the man I most admired in this world was my dad. And yet everything I did seemed to go contrary to me being able to. And I was living in that basement apartment, and I was passing out and coming to, and passing out and coming to, and I hadn't paid the rent, so I couldn't tell him there was water on the floor that had soaked the mattress because it didn't have bed, just had a mattress on the floor. And I slept on that bathroom floor, and I'd been bleeding from the stomach. And I got to the point where I had confusion in that wet brain, and I couldn't understand what was happening. I was hearing voices come in. And I got an eviction notice, and if you get an eviction notice, they don't evict you that day. It's like a month or six weeks, but for an alcoholic, that's not enough time to do anything about it. And so it came down to the day they were evicting me. And I went up to the liquor store, and I was shaking. And it didn't matter that they were evicting me. As long as I could have that whiskey inside my body, I was okay. And I walked up to that liquor store, Capital City Liquors, still there. And the guy says, just a minute, he brought out the manager, and the manager said, we know that this check is no good, and we know that the last few checks you've written are no good, and we would like for you not to come into our liquor store anymore. And it was long since past the point where I could drive, and I could only walk, and that was the only place for me to go. And as degrading and as humiliating as that was, the only thing I could think of was, God, I hope he gives me that whiskey. That was the only thing that I had any value on in this life. And he did give me the bottle of whiskey, and I walked back towards that apartment. And as I came around the bend, it was on the bottom, and it had a concrete landing. And something happened, and I slipped, and that bottle went down and hit that landing and broke, and that bourbon spilled all over the ground. And I felt more powerless and fearful in that moment than I ever had in a firefight in Vietnam because I had no weapon. I had no place to go. I had no backup. I had no buddies. I had nothing. I was alone, and I couldn't solve this. And I walked in, and I got a a weapon. I still had a weapon. I put a bolt in the chamber, and I got ready to pull a trigger. And I got all the anger that I'd had all this time started coming up because I blamed God for my condition. And I started screaming, God, blanket, God, blanket, God, blanket. And suddenly I broke and I said, God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. And that was the first prayer, honest prayer that I'd said in a long, long time. And that vision from Days of Wine and Roses, film that I'd seen I don't know how many times drunk, came into my mind where Jack Klugman walks up to Jack Lemon. And I just had a moment of peace. And I saw that scene where Jack Klugman says, I understand you need help. I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked up to a phone booth on a street corner. Didn't have phone, hadn't paid any bills. And I called and I'm crying and I said, I need help. I'm alcoholic. And the operator knew to call AA. And a woman named Helen, who still mans the Atlanta central office, was on there, and this wasn't, I didn't get a recording or somebody that says they'd send me a pamphlet or anything else. I was getting ready to kill myself. I got Helen on there. She said, honey, you wait right there. I'm going to send somebody. And this is when we did a lot of 12-step work, which I think is one of the biggest things that's missing from our program right now, working with wet drunks. And so this guy came out, and he, and he, and he shows up, and he sits with me and talks with me for an hour, where I go between being arrogant and looking at him and deciding if he has what I want and crying. And I had 
defecated on myself, and I'd urinated on myself. And he sat there while I had a loaded weapon in my lap and patiently told me his story and shared with me the horrors of his past. And I believed him, and I trusted him, and I did the most complete third step I've ever done in my life because I took me, and I turned me over to him. And he took me someplace where he knew I was, going to start, I was already shaken so they could dry me out. And from that day until now, I have never been any place like I was before where I have not had somebody there holding their hand out, ready to help me, somebody I could call at 4 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, who would help me. And I have not had a desire for a drink since that day. I had brain damage, or wet brain, so it took me about a year and a half to learn how to read. They sent me, and the big book says, when we sincerely take such a position, the third step, he provides what we need, and I can't tell you how, because I couldn't get a job as a writer if you can't read, uh, but, uh, um, you know, but, but, I, but I go back to Louisville, Kentucky, my hometown, and somebody lent me a ride to get up there, and somebody, and they told me who my sponsor was going to be, and it was going to be a railroad man named Jack Sullivan, and so I wrote Jack Sullivan down here, and I remember going into McDonald's, somebody give me some money to get something to eat on the way there, and I go into McDonald's, and I'm saying to myself, Jack Sullivan, call Jack Sullivan, and they thought I was retarded, but it didn't make any difference. I did call Jack Sullivan, and I got sober, so, so I'm, I'm there, and I get to town, and I call Jack, and, and Jack connects me with a guy named Harry, and they take me to a meeting, and I ended up going to 10 meetings a week for the first four years. You may not need that many. I needed more than that. They asked me how many hours a day did I drink. I said, well, and they said, we don't have that many meetings, so you're, you're going to go. So I went to, and I was given this, this unbelievable foundation in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't realize it at the time. I have never been good at realizing how great the gifts are that God gives me until after the fact. But he gave me eight speaker meetings a week to go to, a big book meeting, and a 12 and 12. There was no time at all for me to listen to you whine or me whine or for two of us idiots who had six months try to tell each other how the program works. We were listening to people who were sober, and they were helping us, and they were had us by the hand, and they were carrying us, and they were carrying us to meetings. And they took us with them when we did 12-step work and called on new drunks. They didn't want us to tell anybody much about the program. They said, just sit here and watch what we're doing. But I learned this, and I had this, and they gave me a job. And if you're new in the program, you need a job because you need to belong, and I needed to belong. And here is this guy who, you know, had one time had, you know, I was the youngest creative director at that agency ever, had a Clio, all this stuff, who's who. My job, I was the ashtray guy, and I mentioned earlier, I was the ashtray guy at my home group, and this was in Kentucky, and as I mentioned there, when you came in, everybody smoked. So we had those ashtrays, and I cleaned them up, and I was good at it, and that was my job. And I, I was prouder of that job during that first year or so than of anything I had done prior to that. And I did a really good, I was really a good ashtray guy. And, and I was proud of it, and I meant something, I fit in. And uh, during this process, they told me that the two things I must do, didn't say we suggest, they must do is trust God and clean house. And so they had me work through a house cleaning in the first 30 days. I only had one resentment, but it doesn't make any difference. I mean, I, I, had, I couldn't remember anything, but I did it, so I got through it, and I felt comfortable enough to stay there until I could do another one at six months and another one in a year and another one in a year and a half. And when I, about a year and a half, my brain clicked in all of a sudden. And finally, I did that root cause inventory. And that root cause inventory was something that, that, that that's where I found out the thing. It wasn't who I slept with or the nickel that I stole from a, 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 you know, a, a drugstore back when I was six years old. 
It was that I hated and had resentment towards God, Jesus Christ, the church, anybody who had a happy family, all these people who had money, all these women I'd been running around spending all my time trying to get all the guys who were better looking, who got all the women that I spent all my money trying to get, and all this stuff. There was nobody in this universe that I didn't, ha- didn't dislike. I had a chip on my shoulder about everything, and there's no way to have a content life when you're angry at everybody. And that's the way I was living. And so I got this out, and now I'm at one of the old-timers comes by and says, how are you doing? I said, well, I've gone to and done the six and seven step, and I did I, the way they told me to do them. And I said, I don't feel that much relief. And he said, well, it's kind of hard to build a good life on a foundation of character defects. Why don't you work through the eighth and ninth step? And you know how they would say that and they leave? You can't respond to them. <laughs> and so, um, so that's exactly what happened. So it was through the ninth step that the miracle started to happen. And when we read the promises at the beginning of the meeting, it says halfway, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, that's the ninth step. And so I started working that. I went to Linda Baptist Church, had a fear sponsor, and I apologized to them for calling them hypocrites all this time and told them that, that I was sorry, but I wanted to make amends. doesn't mean just apologizing. I wanted to stay there and be of service to them for a couple of years. And there was a beautiful young woman in the uh, congregation who was a seminary student at that time and had never seen anybody apologize to a Baptist church. And that woman and I now have been married for 21 years, and she's a pastor down on delegate, and she loves this program as much as me. And I would have missed that if I had told my sponsor, I'm not going to make that amends. Because I was having my own dating thing going on. I was picking girls and going out with them in the program. And and after about the third date, we were taking each other's inventories and trying to figure out how we go to different meetings so we could avoid each other. (laughs) But I have a spiritual partner now who shares with me the same goals. And we have our problems but we love each other, and we've been married for 21 years, and we'll be married as long as we're both living. And God gave her to me. And I went to McCann Erickson, this New York agency, and I go in there, and I am convinced that I'm going to have to go to jail because my sponsor told me that when you take money out of an expense account and don't pay it back, it's not padding the expense account. It's called stealing because it wasn't my money. So I go back, and I, and I apologize, and the comptroller's name was Hartmus. We called her Heartless because she was so tough on everybody. And I, I tell, tell her that, that I have taken this money, and I don't know how I'm going to pay it back. And I, and I go prepared to, to go to jail. And she started crying, and she said, Did you know that there were a group of us who knew you were in trouble, and we had been praying for you? Suddenly we realized that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I had no idea that that gift was out there. I was against everybody, and it turned out everybody was trying to help me. And God was using all these people as angels to help me, and I couldn't even identify it. And my eyes started to open. And I believe that's the spiritual awakening. I can tell you about spiritual experiences, and I will tell you about a couple of them this weekend. But the awakening is where my eyes open up to see what God is doing in in this world. For me, for you. And when I'm living that way and I'm living a spiritual life, I can look at each of you and I can see the promise in you and I can see the value in you and I can see no matter how messed up you may be at the, at the time, I can see that God loves you and that you've got a great future ahead. And when I'm not living that way, I look at you and I resent you because you don't, and I don't like you because of the way you act or something. I can tell my spiritual condition, by the way, I see you. And that was part of my spiritual awakening. And I'm making these amends. And I end, up marrying, I end up marrying this girl. 
And when I married this girl, because I had listened to you and I had made my amends to my father, not by apologizing, but by every Sunday calling and checking and taking care of my mother and sending flowers and sending birthday cards and doing all the things you told me. My dad was my best man when, my, when Barbara and I got married when I was eight years sober. And he's one of my best friends today. And I have a good relationship when there's nothing between us. And I believe that my ability to love my father and feel that my father loves me has helped me in having a relationship with my Heavenly Father so that I trust him. Because I had to learn to trust an AA person first before I could trust God, before I can trust my family. It's all somehow connected. And I went back, and because I had made amends to this woman, this fiancé that threw me out, but I made amends not by going back and finessing things and trying to get back in with her. I made amends according to the way my sponsor helped me. She called me when I was about 10 years sober crying because the man she had married after we broke up turned out to be an alcoholic and she had two kids and she didn't know what to do and he was going to lose his job. And I was able, because she trusted me, because I had made amends and she, she saw what A had done for me, I connected her with Al-Anon. Al-Anon got her to the point where they could do something about it and he's been sober for 18 years now and that's a family that was saved because I, what if I hadn't made that amends? What little amend, what, what working with another alcoholic is it that we do that we skip? What would we miss if we decide to take a vacation for me time? Every good thing that's happened to me has been when I've been doing something for my own discipline to become better fit to serve others or in helping other alcoholics. You're going to see a film tomorrow morning. And I had been praying about an opportunity to do just a small film. And this film you see tomorrow, I'll talk about it. But I've been praying for an opportunity to do that film. I just wanted to do something about the program and pay it back. I donated that film and gave it to Dr. Bob's home. Small film, it's not a big film, but it has a purpose, and you'll see it. And the way I got the opportunity to do that film, I was taking a guy, a speaker, Don Cassini, to the world's worst Denny's at the Atlanta Roundup so he could get a cheeseburger at 1 o'clock in the morning. He's on a high-cholesterol diet. (laughs) And Cassini and I didn't know each other. This was a few years ago. And he said, you know, we need a film. And he is the guy, a couple of guys, and and Don, saved Dr. Bob's home. They put up the titles to their house to get the house. and, and, And if you go up there and see it, it's because those guys put themselves on the block so that they could bring this home back and, re- and renovate it and get it open to the public. And now it's a national landmark. And so he's saying, we need somebody to do a film about that and then let us own the film so we can make money off of it and help support the home. I said, well, that's what I do. I'd love to do that. I've been praying for that opportunity. Now, what if I hadn't been... I'd been in the program quite a while at this point, but they asked me to, to take care of the speaker and host him and take him to Cheeseburger. What if I'd said, oh, I'm too busy to take him to Cheeseburger at 1 o'clock in the morning? So he left there, and I went and checked him out and make sure he was actually the chairman of the board of Dr. Bob's home, and he checked me out to make sure that I was a film producer. You know how we are. And, I, and we found out that was true, and then he said, well, he said, how are we going to do it? And I said, I'll donate all the production. I'll write and produce it and, and uh, direct it. We'll be okay. He said, and I said, we'll need some expense money. We'll need hotel, airfare, equipment. And uh, I said, we'll need about $50,000. He said, oh, he said, we can't even get people to buy raffle tickets up here anymore. And uh, I said, well, if God's in it, and this is what we talked about today in terms of provision, always following purpose. I said, if God wants that to happen, he'll provide it. 
And I got a call about a month later from Don. He was out in Arizona. He was speaking. He mentioned the film. Some guy came up and gave him a check for $20,000. It was a guy who was the grandson of a man Don had helped get sober 30 or 40 years earlier. And he was grateful and he had plenty of money. So we knew we were supposed to do the film. If I'm supposed to do something, God will provide what I need to do it. And I had to learn that lesson. So here I am, I go through all of these things, I've worked through the steps, I've worked through uh, the uh, amends, and the knots are taken out of my stomach, and the last thing I had to do was go back to the last church I went to when I was drinking, and I walked in and I couldn't find anybody. And I walked down front in that chapel, and there was nobody there, and I realized what I was there for. I had to forgive God, because I had so much anger towards him, and I got down on my knees... And as I did that, I had one of those spiritual experiences where I felt all the weight lifted off my back. I felt like I was free. I felt like I was lifted up because we say it at the end of the meeting, but it didn't mean anything. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And now God didn't do it, but I was holding against him. And when I forgave him, I forgave myself. And the knots were taken out of my stomach, and I have never since that time felt like something was going to pick me up and throw me up against the wall. Now I'm free. I go to an old-timer's lunch in there, but I still need a job. I need a car. I need a place to stay. I need, I need money. I need an apartment. Because everything I had had been provided for me on a day-to-day basis. But I need a life now. My mind's working. And I know this. So I go to this AA luncheon that they had, the old-timer's lunch at the Galt House on Friday, if they still have it there in Louisville, Kentucky, and all these old-timers were there. And you know how old-timers don't seem to catch the urgency of what we need. <laughs> and I'm telling them that I... You know, and sometimes you think, were these guys ever drunks? And so I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with them, you know, I need a job, I need a place, and they're not paying a bit of attention. They're talking about Mercedes, somebody's new Mercedes, somebody got a new golf wood. Well, that's great. And so they're talking about uh, uh, where they're going, Hilton Head, things like that. And so at the end of the meeting, a guy says, bring your resume by tomorrow. So I did. Ten minutes after I met with him, I had a job. I had a place to stay. I had an apartment. And a car. I thought I would have given myself a job, you know, sweeping up. That's what I thought humility was, because I had no idea what humility was. I had no idea that humility means I understand what I'm good at and what I'm weak at, honestly. Understand how to turn things I'm weak at over to somebody else who is good at that and know where both of us have our limitations and we turn it over to God. I had no idea that's what it meant and recognize my gifts and how to use them. The job I got, I was press secretary for the mayor. I was doing the advertising and press for a guy that was running for mayor. I end up um, in, uh, they they gave me an apartment, they gave me a car to use, they gave me a lot less money than I thought I (laughs) needed or a man of my stature deserved, the ashtray guy. And so, (laughs) but it was exactly what I needed. I was the biggest liar in the world when I came in here. I would sit at a bar and tell, not you, because I wasn't interested in meeting you, unless you were in a red-haired dress. <laughs> but I, I would tell you, I was, I, I, was a, I was a jet pilot. My father was a jet pilot. I flew a little Cessna 182. I, I was, uh, I was a, uh, a lawyer. I had one, one semester of pre-law. I was a surgeon. I had one semester of pre-med. I, I kind of moved around a little bit. I, I, had, I was a baking soda salesman. Um, one night. It worked. 
And, and the surgeon thing was kind of drying up. So, uh, but I was the biggest liar in the world. And at that time, if you wanted to have a job where you couldn't lie to people, try to be a press secretary in the Woodward and Bernstein area. I had to learn to not talk about things I didn't know about, tell the truth, keep it short and simple, and that was it, which was extremely difficult. But I learned that. The second thing was I'd been arrested 22 times, and many of it was because I, w- I, I had felt it was my obligation to help authorities see my point of view. And so uh, I had gotten into it with a lot of cops, always drunk, never knew what their names were, and how am I going to make amends to them? It turned out they were dying because people were covering for them so they wouldn't lose their retirement. And I, with the help of my sponsor, Jack Sullivan, at LN Railroad, put in the first program there for the city. And the first six cops that were 12-stepped, I 12-stepped in the chief's office. He said, you can get fired or you can go with Dick. So they would listen to Dick. I'd take him to a meeting. The second guy who got sober ended up being the director of that program for those cops until he died about two years ago. In spite of the fact that I was still a blithering idiot, God was using me even then. And I didn't recognize it. And that has been my experience all along, that if I'm willing to do something for somebody else, if I'm willing to, to, to work with another alcoholic, I get to do the film, I get to meet my wife, I get to have whatever. And the biggest thing of all is that the, the problem that I had that kept me from trying to be like my father the most was fear. I thought my dad was a man without fear. He had fear. He just had courage so that he, he, he did the right thing. He believed in doing the right thing. And today I'm capable of that. Because when my original sponsor was dying of six malignant brain tumors, he had no self-pity. He was grateful for what AA had done. He was not afraid because he told me exactly that. He said, just if God has been this good to me here, just think of what he's got waiting for me on the other side. And he died within just a short time after finding out. And because of that, three years ago when I almost died, I was able to hold my wife's hand and truly say to her that if I'm going, I'll see you on the other side, and if not, uh, I'll be back. But either way, God's going to take care of both of us. And I was not afraid. And everything that I have not been able to accomplish in my life has been because I had fear. And once that fear is removed, it says we will lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We were reborn. Without fear, I'm capable of doing anything that my talents and my gifts allow me to do. And I can be there in the tough times. You're looking at a guy who was not there when my mother's father died. I was out for two nights drunk as a 16-year-old with their car worrying my mother when her father died. And last month, my wife's mother and father unexpectedly died. Both of them dropped dead of heart attacks within seven days of each other. And this is how much God loves me and how much he loves us. Because I now listen to that voice, not my voice, but I listen for that voice that I know is God's because I've become accustomed to this conscious contact. I was on a plane on Friday before my wife's father died. And we had mechanical problems and they deplaned us. And they got ready to put us on another plane and I knew I wasn't supposed to get on it. My mother's been sick. She's had heart problems, and so I thought I was supposed to go up there. So I went back home, told my wife that something told me to get off that plane. And ten minutes later, they called, and they'd found her father without a heartbeat. And seven days later, 
three days after the service for her father. I took Barbara to an AA thing in Hilton Head so she'd get away for a couple of days. We were sitting there, and we got another phone call about her mother, and they had found her without a heartbeat. In the and we came back, and they had resuscitated her. And I was so angry when we got that news. And I said, God, you better show us that you're in the middle of this. And my wife got sick, and she was throwing up, and she had to, we were driving back from Hilton Head to Atlanta, and she had to go to the bathroom, and we went in, and we asked, said, you've, we, we tested God, but this is how much God loved us. I said, you've got to show us a sign. We walked into Wendy's, and they were playing How Great Thou Art on the speaker system. And that may not be the partingly Red Sea, but it's close for us. And we got back there, and my wife and I held her hand. And we told her it was okay to go because they told us she'd have a massive coronary and that she wouldn't last much longer. And we decided it was okay to let her go. And we held her hands and we said the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. And within just a second, our heart stopped upon her hand, having just asked for God's will. And if that's not a sign that this was God taking two people who had led full lives, who both had early Alzheimer's, who wanted to be together... Even though it may have hurt us, there's a bigger picture. There's a way that God looks at it, and I may not understand it, but he loves both of us enough that he took both of them mercifully, quickly, and allowed us to be there and allowed this drunk to be there for my wife, to be doing the right thing. And I live like my dad does now, like a man with integrity. You give me 60 days away from this program, and I'm trying to figure out how to steal something, or not steal something, but I'm not a steal person. I'm a con person. How to con something. <laughs> I don't actually want to do the work of stealing, but I would like to, I'd like for you to give me something for nothing. <laughs> you give me 60 days away from this program, and I'm a con man. But you keep me in the middle of this, working with you. And I have, people confuse me for my dad because they think I have integrity, and I'll, that's good enough for me. Thank you.